Um, typically, we would, we would stand up right now and get to hang out with one another and connect, and we're going to do that in just a second. I want to begin just so we can maximize our time, and then Lee is really excited to get over to the bounce house, so I need to like, keep this concise. Um, I, I was, as I was listening to Nuna, something that she kept repeating over and over is they are open to the gospel. They want to hear the gospel. You just need to come and share it with them. And if you've been in the church for any period of time, you've heard this word gospel a lot. We, we use it about as often as a surfer uses the word dude. You know, it's just part of our dialect as the church. But do we ever really stop and ask ourselves, well, what do we really mean by that? What is the gospel? How would we articulate that? The, the word gospel, the original Greek word is evangelion. And it basically is the, the word from which we get evangelist. The word literally means good news. But what is the good news? And how would we articulate it? That's the question I really want to wrestle with this morning. But rather than simply telling you what it is, I'm going to give you guys an opportunity to articulate it. So here is the question I want you to stand up and interact with one another for a couple of minutes with. It's not the one that's going to be on the screen. Here's the question. How would you articulate the gospel? What would you say to them? What is the good news? So stand up, greet somebody, and tell the good news to somebody. We're going to have three or four minutes to do this. And once you have shared, force them to share it back with you. Even if it's the same way you'd articulate it, do it anyway because we need to articulate it sometimes to really get it. Ready? Go. Huh? I did. You're right. I did. I imagine that for some of us, that was a little more difficult than we may have anticipated. For others, it's like, oh, well, yeah, that's what I meant to say. And and were there any of you that were kind of surprised at the way you articulated it was maybe slightly different than how somebody else articulated it? Yeah, crickets. Okay, good. You guys were talking about your Memorial Day weekend plans, weren't you? That's uh Uh-huh. Ah, okay. So, um, interestingly, there's not a specifically correct way, like one way that we have, you know, we have the Lord's Prayer. How do you pray? Jesus gave us, here's how you pray. Well, throughout Scripture, as you look at it, there are, there's passage upon passage upon passage in which people articulate the gospel message. And they do it in slightly different ways. And I've got a sheet in back that's got probably 30 different ways that it's articulated throughout Scripture. But today, I just want to focus on four of them. Four different articulations of the gospel that we get in Scripture. It's in your outline, so you can read along with me. The reason that we're not going to actually go to the Scriptures, we're just going to kind of jump to them, and then we're going to dive in to some other things. The first one that I want to look at was actually written 700 years before Jesus was born. It was written by the prophet Isaiah as the Holy Spirit kind of gave him the words to say, and he writes this. This is from Isaiah 53. Surely he, the Messiah, took our pain And bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds were healed. Now, if you didn't realize that that was written seven centuries before Jesus came to be, you would expect that that was written by an eyewitness. So that's one articulation of the good news. By his wounds we have been healed. He took our punishment upon himself. The second one is one that we're all very familiar with. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish 
but have eternal life. The third one, this is written by Paul. He's writing to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15. And he writes, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, which is just another way of saying Peter. And then to the twelve disciples. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. He's writing to a people in a time when there are a lot of these people who have seen Jesus Christ in the flesh risen. So he's saying most of them are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, Jesus' half-brother, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. He's referring to the way that he became a disciple, the way that Jesus Christ literally met him on a road as Paul was on his way to persecute the church in another city. And he goes, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And suddenly, Saul goes from the greatest persecutor of the church to the greatest advocate of the church and of Jesus Christ and the way And then he finishes up in verse 11 with, this is what we preach, and this is what you've believed. That's Paul's, one of the ways that Paul articulates the gospel. And then the last one is found in 1 Peter chapter 2. This is written by the disciple Peter. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on a tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And then he quotes Isaiah 53, for by his wounds you've been healed. Now, this week I have this um, on my phone, which I've turned off, by the way. Uh, (laughs) Hint, hint. Uh, I I get this Bible app, and every day it gives me different verses that it throws out, and it's in the contemporary English version, which isn't one that I typically read, but I love the articulation of 1 Peter chapter 2 that we just read in the contemporary English version, so I want to read it for you. He says this, this is, the, this is just a different translation of the same verse we just read. Christ carried the burden of our sins. He was nailed to the cross so that we would stop sinning and start living right. By his cuts and his bruises, you're healed. I just love that because it reminds me that the cross of Christ isn't just something that, ha- you know, that affects my then when I'm going to be with God in heaven, but it affects the here and now, it affects my life. And so as you look at those four, and there are so many other passages we could point to that kind of encapsulate what the gospel message is, what the good news is, all of them have one major thing in in common, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ is front and center. It is the epicenter of the good news. We would not have good news if it were not for the cross. Now that's not to say that we celebrate that Jesus died, but we do celebrate why Jesus died. He died to save us, which then begs the question, well, what does that mean? He died to save us. Because we throw that out. Jesus loves you. Jesus saves you. How does Jesus save? What does he save me from? And and what does he save me to? Right? If If you're saving somebody, what does he save us to? That's what I really want to unpack this morning. Those two questions. What does he save us from? And what does he save us to? If you would, turn with me. To Romans chapter 6. We're going to look at three different ways that Jesus, what three different things that Jesus has saved us from. The first one, 
just go ahead and turn with me to Romans chapter 6. The first thing that Jesus has saved us from is the penalty of our sins. It's the first fill-in on the back of your outline. The first thing he saved us from is the penalty of our sins. And so we read in Romans chapter 6, the very last verse of Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is what? Is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. One of the things we need to recognize is the gravity of sin. In a lot of ways, cheap grace makes sin cheap. Makes it not that big of a deal. But when we look at it from an eternal, spiritual perspective, sin is terribly damaging. You look at Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God has said, don't touch this fruit. This one particular tree, it's off limits. Don't go there. And in their doubting God and whether he was maybe holding out on them, Adam and Eve go, well, it certainly looks appealing. And we know that, you know, as, as Satan was just suggesting, they didn't call him Satan, by the way, he was a serpent. You know, as the serpent was just saying, it would give us the ability to know the difference between good and evil. And we kind of feel like maybe God has held out on us. Maybe we should eat of it. And they eat the fruit, they sin, or they miss the mark of God's perfect standard, they disobey him. And in that process, what happens? Sin and then its cousins, shame and guilt, come flooding into their reality. And suddenly, where they have had an intimate relationship with one another and with their Father in heaven, suddenly they feel estranged, they feel ashamed, they begin to hide. They cover their nakedness out of shame. They feel vulnerable and so they hide from God. And the relationship that they had, the intimacy that they had is fractured. And we know that sin ultimately means that when we sin, the penalty for that is death. By blood we are healed. And if you sin, you deserve death. But God had already kind of taken it into his mind. I know that they, I want to have relationship with my kids. I don't want death. I don't want sin to get the last word. And so he took upon himself the penalty that was due us. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to go to earth, take on human flesh, and ultimately walk to the cross willingly, taking upon himself the penalty that we had earned so that we could be justified, that the penalty could be served, and so that we could be reintroduced into relationship with him. The cross is a wonderful implement of grace, Because of what it represents, it it represents what Jesus Christ did for us. He paid the penalty for our sins. Which then brings us to the next thing that the cross and Jesus Christ's sacrifice has done for us and saved us from. And that is the need to earn our own forgiveness. Turn with me to Ephesians, just a couple of books to the right. Ephesians chapter 2. And I want you to camp out there because we're also going to go to Ephesians chapter 3 in just a second. So don't close it from this section. He has saved us from the need to earn forgiveness. When I mess up, whether it's with my wife, with my kids, or or with God, when I screw up, my tendency is to want to like go run off and hide like a dog with my tail between my legs, lick my wounds, and ultimately clean myself up enough to be worthy to come back into relationship. I try to do enough good things to kind of offset the bad things I've done. And a lot of the religious perspectives around the world take that as if you do more good things than bad things, then you're in a good footing with God. And the reality is 
according to the Bible, there is no way that we could ever make up for sin. Because God's righteous standard is perfection. I don't know about you, but I'm never going to reach perfection by my own strength or through sheer grit and determination. But the good news of the cross of Christ is that God doesn't expect us to do that. He doesn't expect us to reach perfection. He doesn't expect us to be good enough to earn our way back into a right standing with him. Because he took that upon himself, and through Jesus' sacrifice, we are declared righteous in his sight. By his blood we are healed. And so we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, It is by grace you have been saved, through faith. This isn't of yourselves. It's, it is the gift of God, not by works. Okay, you did not earn this. You did not do enough good things to be declared a son or a daughter of God. You didn't do enough good things to be declared righteous in his sight. This is a gift of grace given by a loving father who loves you enough that he took the penalty upon himself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So nobody can stand up here and go, I've done this. I am a good man. Well, that's great, but there are a lot of good people who don't know Jesus Christ and ultimately won't have an eternal relationship with him if they don't come to know him. Because he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father. No one is declared righteous apart from Jesus Christ. And so it's a gift of grace. Not only do we not have to earn the right to be called sons and daughters, we never could. And that's a truth that we need to wrestle with and we need to accept. But it's also good news because we don't have to. God doesn't expect that of us. Which brings us then to the third and perhaps the most important part of all of this. The third thing that he saved us from is eternal separation from God. Eternal separation from our Father. We read in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12. In Him, in Christ, and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. When I mess up, my human tendency is, is to think that love is contingent upon worthiness. And when I screw up, I'm like that proverbial dog with my tail between my legs and I walk back into God's presence like, are we okay? What do I need to do? You know, do, do I need to pray the sinner's prayer with a few more people? Do I need to give a little bit more money in the, in the tithe and offerings basket? Do I need to go to church a couple more times in a row before you, you know, I get to be forgiven? And the reality is, no, what he has saved us from is this separation that we saw with, from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve hiding from their father. And the sin creating this wedge that separated us. Separates all of us from the Father. And the cross decimates that gulf that, that sin has caused between us. Now, I can talk about this intellectually. And each of those three things, we've talked about them intellectually, but I think sometimes we miss the heart of what is really being said. I think that's the reason why Jesus taught in stories and, and proverbs more than he did I'm sorry, in parables, rather than he did, there we go, come on, rather than he did speaking just through theological treatises. He spoke in stories because stories go to the heart 
and carry the heart. And so often it was the Pharisees, they focused on the law and missed the heart of God. And he was trying to get his people to understand the heart of their father. And so he told this story. There's this kid. He's the second born son of a very wealthy landowner. And this kid is kind of chafing under the rule of his dad. He's, he's not enjoying life and he really just kind of wants to go sow his wild oats. So he goes up to his dad and he goes, Dad, I kind of wish you were dead because quite honestly, I want my inheritance and I don't want to stick around waiting for you to die. So can I just have what is mine now? Now in that day and age, that father had every right to disown his son and say, be gone. You're no son of mine. Get out of my home. You will get nothing from me. But this father, who in this story represents the heart of God, says, is that what you think you want? Okay, I'll give you what you think you need, what you want. I hope it makes you happy. And this son takes his inheritance, and he goes off to a distant land, and he begins to live the party life. Lots and lots of friends starts coming out of the woodwork, right? Because when money is flowing, friends are flowing. And they're having fun. They are having, they're celebrating until the wee hours of the morning, not remembering much of it. They're eating the finest food, living in the nicest penthouse. They are living it up. And then one day he wakes up and realizes the bank account is empty. He has wasted his inheritance and he's got nothing left. And his so-called friends are gone. The food is gone. He's evicted from his penthouse and he needs to figure out a way to fill his growling stomach. And so he takes any job that he can get. And he finds himself, this once self-respecting Jewish boy, finds himself feeding the pigs, these unclean animals. And he's up to his knees in the slop of the pigsty. And he's filling up the, the pigs' feeding troughs. And as he looks at the slop that he's putting in there, he longs to fill his stomach with their food. He's that hungry. And in a moment of clarity, he kind of looks at himself and goes, my gosh, how far I've fallen. I mean, there are servants in my dad's household that live better than I am. My dad takes so much better care of, of his servants than he does how I'm living. Maybe I could go home and, and, and beg for my father to take me on as a slave. I know I'll never be his son again. I burned that bridge. That ship has sailed. But maybe my father will take me back as maybe a hired hand. And so this boy climbs out of the pigsty and begins that long, terrifying trek home. And as he's going, you know what he's doing. He's trying to come up with his speech. What am I going to say? Okay, I can't call him dad. Sir, um, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to say to him. But he starts practicing what he's going to say. All of his apologies, all of his, his entreaties, please accept me back as one of your hired hands. Remember, this is a story Jesus is telling, illustrating the heart of our father. And he, he now jumps to the dad who's standing on the porch this whole time that his son has been gone. He hasn't been just kind of going on with his life forgetting about his boy. He still loves him. And this father is standing on his porch, looking out at the horizon, just hoping that his son will come home. And at one point, he sees the shadow of a person come up over the horizon. He goes, I think that looks like my boy. Now, we may expect that this father would just cross his arms, 
and let his boy make that long walk of shame all the way up to the house and then begin to get down on his knees and grovel because that's what he deserves, right? This is a learning lesson for his boy. But that's not the heart of our father because the father in this story, and remember, Jesus is showing us the heart of our father. This father pulls up his robes, which would be a very undignified thing for a man to do, and he runs. The moment he knows it's his boy, he begins to run with all of his might down the pathway as far as he needs to until he comes to his son, who is covered in the filth of a pigsty and covered in the sweat and the griminess of the road that he's been on. He's disgustingly ill-prepared to meet his father. And yet his dad doesn't even wait for him to make his entreaty. He throws his arms around his boy and he picks him up and he begins to go, my son is home. Oh, my boy, I missed you. Oh, I missed you so much. And I love you. And then he calls to one of the servants, come over here, go get me a new robe and new sandals and put them on my boy because this son who was lost to me is home. He doesn't even give his son permission to start suggesting that he be a servant. Instead, he says, my son is home. And they kill the fattened calf and they throw a party. That is the heart of our Father in heaven. Not that we have to earn the right to come home. He just says, come home. Not that we have to pay the penalty for our sins. He said, just come home. Just come home. Not that we have to stay estranged from our Father because of what we've done. Just Come home because I love you and I've already done everything that needs to be done. Just come home. That's good news. That's good news for me because I'm well aware of the ways that I have fallen short. I'm well aware of what my lifestyle has earned for me. I'm well aware of the ways that I want to run and hide sometimes because I know that I am not the type of man that you probably think I am. I'm not the type of man that is deserving to be called a saint. No, I'm straight up a sinner. But because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, he calls me a saint, a saved sinner. But even more than that, he calls me son. And he would say the same about you. So that's good news. But... That's only half of the good news. Because he has saved us from the penalty of our sins. He has saved us from the need to earn our righteousness. And he has saved us from eternal separation from our Father. Which begs the question then, well, what has he saved us to? John 3.16. We're all familiar with it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have what? Eternal life. Romans 6.23, one that, a passage that we just looked at a couple of moments ago, says something very similar. I'm going to go ahead and turn there and just read it one more time. You don't need to turn there. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Twice we see that one of the things we've been saved to is eternal life. But let me ask you this question. When I say eternal life, what do you automatically think of? What? Heaven. Death. The afterlife. 
You know, death isn't going to touch me. I'll live forever. I get to spend eternity with God in heaven. My guess is that our typical mindset is when we think about heaven, I'm sorry, when we think about eternal life, we think about the afterlife. We think about what comes after we've kind of shuffled off this mortal coil, whether that's a couple of years or a couple of decades from now. And to be sure, the, the, the cross of Christ gives us confidence that we will not have to stay estranged from our Father throughout eternity, which sounds like hell to me. Instead, we'll get to spend eternity in relationship with Him. And that is truly good news. But, does the gospel have something to say about our life now? From the moment that we say, Jesus, I can't do this on my own. I give up. I've tried. I've tried to be the captain of my own ship, and I have run this bad boy aground. And I desperately need your help. I've tried to be a good father. Can't do it by my own. I've tried to be a good husband. Can't do it on my own. I've tried to be a good man. But I know that I'm not good enough. And I need you to come into my life. I need you to clean me up. I need you not only to save me, but I need you to be the Lord of my life. You begin guiding and directing my choices. And may I suggest to you that when we submit our lives to Christ, and we say, you be Lord, and actually allow him to begin coming in and cleaning house, allowing the Holy Spirit to begin transforming us from the inside out, it is at that moment that eternal life comes crashing into our reality. True, we have not experienced it in its fullness. We're going to look at this next week, what that fullness of eternal life looks like as we wrap up his story. But what does it mean here and now when eternity comes crashing into my reality and I begin to experience a relationship with God here and now in my life? How does that begin to transform my home life? How does that begin to transform my neighborhood? How does that begin to transform the way that I look at my workplace? Or the gifts that God has given me? Glenn makes amazing movies and videos and commercials. That's his livelihood. But God, how could, I be, how could you use me to advance your kingdom, to get the truth out there in some way that people will hear it and be transformed by it, and want to do something about it. God, how do you want to use me? Does the good news say something to us about the here and now? And I would suggest that there is passage upon passage that does, in fact, talk about the fact that eternal life comes crashing into our reality when we submit to Jesus' lordship. We don't have time to look at all of them, and fortunately, today we're going to look at one. Next week, we'll look at another. Turn with me to Ephesians... Nope, wrong... To 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to now look at... We have been saved to eternal life. That's one. But I'm going to make the suggestion that we have also been saved to God's original purpose and plan for us. I'll explain what I mean by that in just a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. One of my very, very favorite passages in Scripture. We read in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, If anyone is in Christ, if anyone places their faith in Him and allows Him to be the Lord of their life, the new creation has 
come. Or other versions of this say, he is a new creation. Now what I want to point out there is it is not in the future tense. He will be made a new creation. Or the new creation will come. It's already past tense. It's already happened. The new creation has come. You are a new creation. And if we didn't notice it there, we keep reading. The old is gone. The new has come. This has already happened. Eternity has already come crashing into our reality. We don't have to wait till we die to have a relationship with God. We can already have it. We don't have to wait until we die to have, the, well, to have a new resurrection body where we know it no longer breaks down, where we no longer have back pain, where we no longer have addiction, where we no longer have you know, the, the brokenness and cancers and, and all the other ailments. Yes, that's coming. But eternity has already come crashing in and we are already new creations. Being transformed into his image to be used by him. So the old is gone, the new is here. Verse 18, all of this is from God who reconciled us, past tense, to himself through Christ. Stop there for a moment. That is the gospel message that almost every single one of us, when we think of, well, what's the good news? What is the gospel? That's what we think of. God has reconciled us to himself through Christ. Because of what he did on the cross, I'm a new creation. I get to have relationship with God. Awesome. End of story. Gospel message out. But the amazing thing is Paul doesn't stop there, does he? Verse 18. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. Notice this. As we become Christ followers, as we submit our lives, as we become reconciled to him, he now entrusts to us the opportunity to be his representatives. We are therefore, this is verse 20, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, to take our sins upon himself, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. We might live lives that declare that we have a Father in heaven who loves us. And that we are no longer shackled by sin and shame and guilt and separation. That's the good news in its entirety. Not only that we won't have to go to hell when we die, but that eternity can crash into our reality when we say, I'm sick and tired of trying to be the captain of my own ship. You have your way. And when we allow that to happen, and when the Holy Spirit is given permission to begin clearing house and transforming us from the inside out, then all of a sudden God says, okay, remember all the way back there in Genesis chapter 2 when I created you in my image? Why did he create mankind in his image? We only talked about this three months ago. Why don't you remember? 
We have been created in his image as image bearers to be his representatives on earth. His desire originally for mankind was that we would be his hands and feet. We would be his representatives, having dominion, caring for his good creation. I guess a better term might be his stewards. And then representing his heart. And when that didn't work, when when Adam and Eve fell, then he said, okay, nation of Israel, you represent me. You be my representatives to the rest of the world. You represent my heart. And now God's original purpose and plan comes squarely into those of us who say, I submit my life to you. All of a sudden, God's original purpose that we would represent him is passed on to us. We have the opportunity to be ambassadors of hope and reconciliation to a world that desperately needs hope to a world that is drowning in despair, to a world that feels like, here are the things that I've done. How can a father ever love me? Good news, not so much, because I'll never be good enough. Well, guess what? Neither will I. I'm not a pastor because I've got it all together. I'm a pastor because I, I recognize first and foremost that I desperately need a Savior. The only reason I can stand before you isn't because I live a perfect life, but because he lived a perfect life for me. I am a broken vessel that God says, okay, go ahead and pour yourself out. I will keep filling you up. Just love out of the love that I have lavished upon you, out of the grace that I have covered you in. And so this morning, I simply want to present to you the same message that has been echoed throughout Scripture. You are a sinner. You've fallen short. And welcome to the club. We are all sinners. We are all deserving of eternal separation from our Father. We are all deserving of death. But we have a Father in Heaven who was not okay with that. And so he has taken upon himself the penalty that we earned for ourselves. And because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, we do not need to be declared as sinners. We can be declared as saints, saved sinners. Furthermore, we can be declared as his son and his daughter. And even more than that, we get to be his representatives. We get to be light in our spheres of influence, in our homes. In our, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools. And as we just go along in our lives, the people we come into contact with, and then to the ends of the earth, we have been entrusted with this good news. And so this morning I want to close my time. We're going to go into a, a little bit of time of worship, but I'm going to close with this. Why don't you bow your heads? Because there are some of us here this morning who have perhaps been operating out of a partial gospel, a gospel that says, if I do good enough, then my Father in heaven will accept me back. We've had the mindset of this young prodigal son who thinks that maybe God will take me on as a servant, but I could never be his son or his daughter. Maybe some of us have been approaching this gospel message simply as a message that I'm loved and that's good enough. My ticket to heaven has been punched and eternal life is coming when I die. But we've missed 
the part where God's eternal kingdom comes crashing into our reality. And we can experience intimacy with him here and now. And perhaps there are some of us here who just have looked at our lives, weighed ourselves, found ourselves wanting, and said, I'm never going to be good enough, and so I give up. And it's to you right now, to all of us, who in some way have been operating out of only a partial gospel, that I want to simply present to you the opportunity to embrace the entire good news. So I'm going to pray something. And if this is the cry of your heart, then I invite you to echo it, whether out loud or in your own heart, whatever. Father, I am a sinner. (laughs) But you already know that. And I thank you that in spite of that, you still love me. I thank you that you love me so much that while I have lived in rebellion against you, you were willing to send your son, Jesus, my Savior and my Lord, to die in my place so that my sin wouldn't get the last word. God, I continue to fall short. I continue to struggle trying to be the captain of my own ship. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would fill me up and cleanse me. I submit control of my life to you. Would you search me and know me? Would you show me the ways in which I struggle and resist you and your lordship? Jesus, I accept you not merely as my Savior, but I accept you as my Lord. Your will be done. And Father, I embrace the fact that you want relationship with me now. You don't want to wait until I die to come and be with you. So would you help me to live eternity now? And would you help me to be a faithful ambassador of this good news? So that other children, others of your sons and daughters would come to know that they are loved and they can stop running and striving and trying. Jesus, have your way in my life. And may your kingdom advance in and through me. Pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. A couple of thoughts as we go into a time of worship. Firstly, if that is a prayer that you are praying perhaps for the first time, perhaps for the 50th time, but you mean it, then I would encourage you to share that with somebody, maybe with myself or Lee, one of the pastors maybe with a friend or maybe with a family member, do not keep this a secret. Because we have an enemy who loves to come and try to steal, kill, and destroy the hope that has been planted in our hearts. Tell somebody so that you're not walking alone. Secondly, if you really mean this, throughout Acts, as we read of people coming to know Jesus Christ and giving their lives to him, submitting to his lordship, the next act that they chose to do was an act of baptism. There's nothing magical about it. It was simply a public declaration that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And I'm not ashamed of that fact. And next Sunday, I love God's timing because he just 
we, not, we don't intentionally plan these things. He kind of knows what we're, where we're going. So next Sunday at 9 a.m., we have a baptism class. And if you feel like, you know what? Maybe it's time for me to publicly declare my faith and my willingness to submit my life, then please indicate that on your connection card. And in just a moment, the ushers are going to come. We're going to take offering and drop that into the offering. We will email you and remind you, because I would forget that it's an hour before church next week. So please indicate that on your connection card so we can remind you. Let me pray for us. Let me pray for this offering. And then we're going to go into a time of worship. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for moving towards us when we were in open rebellion to you. Thank you for using broken vessels to be your representatives. I thank you for the prodigals that have come home today. I thank you for the ways that you throw your arms around us and welcome us home. And I know that there are celebrations going on in heaven. Would you make these decisions reality? Because what we have prayed is not the end of the line. This isn't where we punch our ticket and we're done. This is the beginning of a life lived in pursuit of our Savior. This is the beginning of a story of our lives in relationship with you. So may this be a wondrous starting line. And would you give us the strength to persevere all the way through the finish line, whether it's a couple of years or a couple of decades. But we want to we burn brightly for you in the darkness. For your name's sake, not for our own. So that your kingdom in advance, not our own. Would you be glorified in us, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.